In last week's uh, message, Jesus uh, provided comfort to his disciples' troubled hearts uh, in light of his soon departure uh, via the cross and then the resurrection, and then he was going to go back to, in the ascension to heaven. But he assured them that he'll go to heaven in order to prepare a place for them, which means if he's going to prepare a place for them, that he's going to come back and get them and take them uh, to, to heaven. He also comforted them by saying that uh, they knew the way to where he was going, to which Thomas, as you recall, immediately objected that they didn't know the way. And what he meant by that is we don't have a GPS, we don't have a roadmap to get to where you're going. And that one comment that Thomas made really invited one of the most significant statements by our Lord um, as far as his true identity is concerned. A comment made to Thomas 2,000 years ago, but that really has become the heart and soul of identifying who Jesus is. His true identity as, as you recall, the way, the truth, and the life. And he also made a, a point that no one comes to the Father except through him. Right, meaning that Jesus is the only way of salvation. A very exclusive claim, not one way amongst many ways, but the only way to get to heaven. He then makes it clear that if you know him, you automatically know his father, even if you didn't realize it, even if you didn't think of yourself as having a relationship with the father, if you know Jesus and have a relationship with him, you actually do. And it is that thought that kind of um, becomes the jumping off point for uh, today's message. But before we get there, let's, uh, um, before we read the passage, let's take a look here at the, the outline real quick. As you can see, the, the title of today's message is The Unity Between the Father and His Son. And there's uh, basically two major points, the Father and the Son in uh, verses 8 to 15, and then the sending of the Spirit in verses 16 and 17. So let me uh, read the passage for us here this morning, then we'll pray, and then we'll get down to business. John chapter uh, 14, uh, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray this morning as we open up the word that it will minister to our hearts um, and that it will cause us to draw nearer to you and and to think about you throughout the week. Use our time, Lord, to... Uh, instruct, to exhort, and to encourage, and to bless. And Lord, just use me to to speak clearly here this morning that people will understand the word clearer than they did before they came. We thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's uh, look there at verse 8, where Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Uh, Philip here speaks for the first uh, time uh, in this conversation and he responds uh, to Jesus's comment which I said is really the jumping off point for this morning's message in verse 7 from now on Jesus said you do know him referring to the father and have seen him Um, now that's that's interesting because Philip is gonna um, is gonna hear that and he's going to say to Jesus, okay, um, I hear what you're saying, um, but can you just do one favor for me, Jesus? Can you just show us the Father? And if you do that, show us the Father, then that's cool. That's enough. I, I think I, we could all live with that. And so in essence, he's asking Jesus to grant them a theophany, uh, you know, if you remember, a theophany is basically just an, a, a, an immediate, visible, uh, you know, vision of God himself. Now, um, if you were to do that, Lord, everything's good. That would pretty much settle the issue for us that, yeah, we would, uh, we would have this revelation from the Father. Do you remember Isaiah's vision that he recorded in chapter 6. Do you remember that? In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? This is one of the more famous theophanies that we see in the Old Testament, a visible appearance of the Lord sitting on his throne. And Philip is basically saying, Lord, I want that. I want an Isaiah 6-1 experience. And if you could do that, all will be well with us here. Now, does this mean, by the way, in asking all of this, that Philip and the apostles didn't believe that, you know, Jesus was really God's son? That he, you know, that he needed to prove that he was God's son by doing this, you know, request for a personal appearance from the Father? Or was it because they were confused as to the true nature of Jesus and, you know, kind of in doubt, you know, he's, he's saying all of this? I, I, don't, I really don't think that that's what's going on here. You know, back in the opening chapter of this gospel, chapter one, um, we read about Philip, same Philip, bringing Nathaniel to Jesus because he's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That's in chapter 1, verse 45. 
And so reluctantly, if you recall, Nathaniel is not all that persuaded by Philip. And he agrees to go and immediately after Jesus reveals to Nathaniel that he actually had seen him before this face-to-face meeting, he he said to him, uh, you know, I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, And uh, um, before, even before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael, after hearing that, confesses, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, in verse 49. Didn't take a whole lot of uh, convincing uh, for the skeptic as soon as he came face to face with Jesus. And they began following Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah, son of God. It wasn't a, a truth that they stumbled upon later. It wasn't something, they weren't following him because they're kind of like, oh, I wonder who this guy is. They already, they were following him because they knew who he was. They were willing to buck, you know, the, the popular opinion of the Jewish leaders. So they knew who Jesus was. That's why they were following him. But, you know, that doesn't mean that in the face of danger, and remember, persecution is just around the corner, it doesn't mean that they didn't have their doubts or they didn't have struggles in their faith. They know that their lives are about to be in danger because Jesus had just told them about Peter's three denials. And so you can understand why Philip might have said something like this. Show us the Father, and that will be good enough for us, and we can face whatever's coming next. Now, it it may be, you know, an outrageous request on Philip's part. Maybe you've made that request too. You know, Lord, if you just would show yourself in this room, then I would know for sure that you're the true God. You know, maybe we've said something, you know, if you just make this, you know, mountain move, you know, then I'll believe that you're the true God or something like that. And so it may be an outrageous request. Just show us the Father like in Isaiah 6, 1. But you know what? You have to think about it. He at least believed that Jesus just might be capable of doing such a thing or he never would have asked in the first place. So the problem is, the problem is that he was inappropriately making a hard and fast separation between the Father and Jesus to which Jesus speaks to next look at the uh, uh, verse 9 there Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you still don't know me Philip whoever has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father Jesus uh, seems to be somewhat disappointed maybe even offended by Philip's requests request here. It, it's, some, it's one thing for Jesus' enemies to say something like this to him, but it's quite another for one of his disciples who has uh, been with him for the duration of his three-year earthly ministry. So Jesus' rebuke to Philip more than suggests that he should have known better than to even ask something like this. The fact of the matter is, Jesus could have at any time, ask the Father to reveal himself, just like Philip, you know, had asked, uh, and he would have. But you know what? That wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Instead, Jesus points to himself and says it's unnecessary for him to do that. You know why, Philip, that's unnecessary? Because you know me. He points to himself. 
There is such a close, intimate union between the Father and the Son that Jesus can simply point to himself and say, that's enough for you. To see the Son is to see the Father. Not, not because the Father and the Son are the same person. If you say that, by the way, you're, you're teaching heresy. That's, that's heresy. The Father and the Son are not the same person. But because what would you see in the Father that could not be seen in the Son? Right? What is lacking in the Son that would be improved upon by the Father? You're not looking at an inferior version of God when you're standing in front of the Son, right? You're not looking at, at junior God here, right? You're not looking at demi-God. You're not looking at, well, you know, I, I, I wanted the real thing, but you're just giving me kind of this, you know, knockoff version of God. No, that's, that's not it, right? You are not getting any diminished understanding of God through Jesus, So in reality, Philip's request has already been granted to them as Jesus is standing right before them and talking to them. They could have not seen the Father any clearer or known him any better than they already have in the person of Jesus. So you can understand why Jesus is disappointed, why he's rebuking Philip, because he's diminishing the person of Jesus. Of Jesus. Do you not know, verse 10, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. When Jesus asks this question, you know, so he answers the question with the question. It presupposes that the disciples ought to believe that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. In other words, there is a mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son. And this tells us that Jesus must have uh, spoken often of this relationship between himself and his Father. But as I say that, there's a mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son. Uh, What exactly does that mean? Well, basically... It's a way to describe the complete unity that exists between the Father and his Son, Jesus, and that what the Son does and says can also be said and done by the Father. So in other words, there's an interchangeability in terms of what the Father does and says and what Jesus does and says. Now that's an important point because how would it affect your faith in Christ if you didn't believe that that was a true statement. In order to put your whole weight of faith in Christ, you must believe that he is worthy or you simply won't do it, right? So in other words, if you're thinking of God as up here and then Jesus is kind of a step down and then you're told put all your faith in Jesus, you'd be kind of like, yeah, well, I want to, but shouldn't I put it in a higher authority, right? But by equalizing them and showing the unity between the Father and the Son, you're giving credibility to these commands and exhortation to put your faith in the Son. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus made the bold claim, I and the Father are one. A claim that was so strong that the, in the very next verse, it reveals that 
they picked up stones to stone him, believing that he was guilty of blasphemy. Jesus wasn't saying that he and the Father were the same person, as we just mentioned, but that he and his Father are one in the sense of their actions and their commitments. So this doesn't imply that there aren't distinctions between Jesus and his Father, even as he makes clear. Both the words and he, you know, that he speaks and the works that he does are both given to him by the Father and on the Father's authority. Okay, so that reveals what the Father is like in what Jesus says and what he does. So clearly then, even though there is absolute equality between the Father and the Son, there is a relationship of authority and submission between them as well. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're totally united, but they're, they're not exactly the same in terms of their persons. They have different roles and they have different relationships. So the Father isn't the Son and the Son isn't the Father. So the affirmation of absolute unity between the Father and Son doesn't imply absolute identity, but there is so much functional overlap between them that what we say about the one we could just as easily say about the other okay so all this to say jesus doesn't speak or work independently of the father but he speaks what the father speaks and he does the works that the father uh, does as well if you think about it jesus said something similar in uh, chapter 12, verse 49, when he, says, when he said this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So there is an, an, a unity of persons between the Father and the Son. And so, again, talking to Philip and hearing that question, show us the Father, and it would be enough for us He's making sure that he reminds him of these truths that he's already taught him, that there's not, it's not necessary to do that. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Interestingly, this verse is not addressed to Philip only. But to all the disciples, the 11 disciples left in that room, as he calls on them to believe me. The reference to works, and and we know that because it's a, a plural verb there. The reference to works in this passage is primarily to his miracles. So the appeal is basically twofold. Believe my testimony about the mutual indwelling between me and my father. But if that's a problem... Believe on account of the miracles which are signs or evidences of Jesus' identity. So Jesus is basically reminding his disciples that those same miracles which they themselves were present to see could not have been done independently of his heavenly Father. You know, think about all the things that Jesus did. What an imposter be able to do those things? Could a false prophet have raised Lazarus from the dead? No, of course not. It's funny, 
that Jesus calls his miracles works in this, in this verse as if to say, you know, what is a miracle to you is just a mere work to me, right? And, and this isn't a, a new argument as Jesus said virtually the same thing back in chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. He said this, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, look what he says there, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now here's the thing. The main difference, however, is that the audience in chapter 10 were his enemies. Here, it's his disciples, which is what makes these comments somewhat sad from Jesus' perspective, right? He's having to say the same things here that he said there. But remember, in John's gospel, the emphasis upon miracles is that they are signs. You know, John uses signs in his gospel more than any other writer. And if you remember, signs are miracles with the meaning. They're not just miracles so that you look at them and you go, oh, wow, that's, that's incredible. That's better than David Blaine, right? They're not meant to just kind of wow at them. They're meant to, to tell you, um, you look at them and you say, wow, what does it mean? What is the significance of that miracle? And in John's gospel, the miracles that he points out that, that are recorded there are specific to revealing the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So that leads us to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Once again, Jesus prefaces his statement with truly, truly, and as I've told you in the past, whenever Jesus says truly, truly to something, we're meant to kind of look twice, you know, put on our glasses, look more carefully, because something important is going to be said in the next breath. Now, on the face of it, this is a rather remarkable claim that Jesus makes, that whoever believes in me will do the works that Jesus does, which is a fairly comprehensive statement. But if that weren't enough, while you're kind of thinking about that, he goes beyond it to say that they will do even greater works than these. Now, how in the world can that possibly be true? Now, before we can say what Jesus means, it's always helpful to rule out what he doesn't mean. So let's rule out what he doesn't mean. First, this is not a general statement that every believer will not only do miracles, but even greater miracles than Jesus himself. Now, maybe that's not a revelation to you, but again, we're saying what he doesn't mean by this. Think about it. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and it's reasonable to think that what he's saying has direct relevance to them and their future ministry, which will include the miraculous, as we know from the book of Acts. There may be application to us 2,000 years later. There may be application, but really only application. Secondly, it simply cannot mean that the apostles will do greater miracles um, in terms of quality uh, than Jesus performed while he was here on earth. 
Now you think about it. Jesus turned water into wine. He healed the blind and the deaf. He walked on water and he even raised Lazarus from the dead. So is Jesus saying that the apostles are gonna do more spectacular miracles than Jesus himself did while he was on earth? Because if he is saying that, we certainly don't find that to be true in the New Testament itself. We, do we find comparable miracles? Comparable miracles, yes. Greater miracles in terms of more spectacular? No, we do not. Okay, So it cannot mean that, that they're going to do greater miracles in quality than what Jesus did. Thirdly, contextually, the clue that Jesus gives to understanding what he means is tied to the last statement. Because I'm going to the Father. But why would their works, what's the connection here, be greater than his just because he's going back to heaven? Well, this is almost certainly, this is almost certainly not working here, but okay, here we go. This is almost certainly a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus says this about in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what is made explicit just a couple of chapters later is that Jesus won't send the Spirit until he himself departs. So the logic of what Jesus is saying is simply this. The advance of the gospel and its saving power will be greater after he has departed. Let me say that again. The advance of the gospel and its saving power will be greater after Jesus departs. There will be many more converts to Christ after he leaves than there ever would have been in his own lifetime. Now, this was the view, by the way, of the early church uh, who pointed to the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts as the fulfillment of these words. And think about that, how these, uh, these words were fulfilled in the book of Acts alone. The Holy Spirit, as soon as Jesus goes back in Acts chapter two, was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the evidence of his arrival where people began speaking in tongues. And more people were converted on the day of Pentecost. This is all in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people came, uh, repented of their sins, and confessed faith in Christ. That's more people in one day than through the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. This was never true, the, 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 like a Pentecost sermon. Something like that never happened in Jesus' own ministry. Think about, um, you know, when, when he preached a sermon. He never preached a sermon, not even the Sermon on the Mount, where that many people were converted at one time. During Jesus' ministry, his influence was small. It was limited to the local region of Palestine where he lived. But what happened almost immediately after he went back to heaven? The apostles would spread the gospel throughout the entire world, right? And all of this would be made possible, not because the apostles themselves could take credit and say, well, see, we know ministry better than Jesus. 
right? The, the, the student has surpassed his master, right? And we're doing more than Jesus could have ever dreamed of doing in his lifetime. No, that's not what's going on here. All of this was made possible not because of themselves being so great, but because they would each have the Holy Spirit working within them. It would be God still working in the lives of, uh, of these apostles. So the Spirit was working in the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. The same Spirit would be working in each of them to do the ministry that God had called them to do in that first century. J.C. Ryle uh, made this, uh, makes this application for us. He says, let us admire the condescension of our master in allowing to the ministry of his weak servants more success than to his own. Let us learn that his visible presence is not absolutely necessary to the progress of his kingdom. He can help forward his cause on earth quite as much by sitting at the right hand of the Father and sending of the Holy Ghost as by walking to and fro in this world. Let us believe that there is nothing too hard or too great for believers to do so long as their Lord intercedes for them in heaven. Let us work on in faith and expect great things, though we feel weak and lonely like the disciples. Our Lord is working with us and for us, though we cannot see him, unquote. So, you know, even if we were able to say, by the way, today, by application, that our churches are able to do greater works than Jesus, I would never say that, by the way, but let's say, for argument's sake, we were able to say that, it wouldn't be because of how great we are as the collective universal church. It would be because of the Spirit working within us and our churches. So whatever credit goes to greater works in the first century and anything by extension isn't because of how great we are. It's the same Holy Spirit that worked in Jesus that is empowering whatever ministry we do in our lifetimes since. All right, let's get to the power of prayer here in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Consider the connection between these verses and what Jesus has just said in the previous verse. The reason why Jesus can promise greater works for the disciples after he's gone is because of prayers that are offered in Jesus' name that are answered in the affirmative. So if you think about it, again, this softens the comparison between what was said about the greater works that Jesus' disciples would do as opposed to himself because ultimately, Jesus is the source behind them both, right? He's going to answer prayer. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? This uh, certainly isn't meant to be understood as a mantra or a magical uh, incantation that can superstitiously be used to grant the worshipers any wish, right? Um, you know, when you're growing up and you're young and you hear messages like this, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? All I have to do is attach 
in Jesus' name to the end of my prayer. God has to do it, right? He, he's bound himself to have to do it. And, uh, um, you know, I think if all of us are honest, if we grew up in the church, we all kind of thought that at some point in, in our young lives. But, you know, um, that's not what's going on here. The more that you read the scripture, the more you start to understand that there's more to the story behind just some words that you speak, right? No, that idea of like manipulating God by incantations or by, you know, uh, doing something repetitiously, that's more in line with paganism than it is with Christianity. Um, The name represents, you know, in antiquity, the person and his reputation. So to pray in Jesus' name means that you are praying a prayer that is not only consistent with who he is, but also in full agreement with what the name represents. So really, by praying in Jesus' name, you are denying yourself and adopting the character of Jesus. It's a kind of prayer that aligns one's wills and desire with God's will. It's prayer that starts with faith in Christ as its base, right? And the glory of the Father through Christ as its goal. So praying those kinds of prayers will grant affirmative responses from Jesus with the express purpose that God the Father will be glorified in his Son. And whenever Christ answers your prayers, this is the connection, he brings glory to his Father. And so the unity between the Father and the Son cannot be overstated, nor their willingness to answer your prayers in the affirmative. With this in mind, we can now focus on the importance of this one word here, whatever. Sorry, I'm a little behind here on the slides. Whatever. Anything. Right? Anything. This widens the promise to all areas of life. Sometimes we wonder whether we should pray for something because it may not be spiritual, quote-unquote, or, or worthy of God's attention, right? Nah, I don't think I should pray that because, you know, it's not about the salvation of the lost, right? It's not spiritual enough. But, you know, we're limiting our requests in a way that Jesus does not when we think like that. So long as it meets the parameters of Jesus' name, we could bring that prayer to the Lord. Should I ask the Lord to grant me the new job that I applied for? Well, is the fulfillment of that request consistent with Jesus' name? Would be the first question to ask. Is the ask simply for the purpose of being richer so that you can buy more stuff? Or are there greater stewardship and kingdom principles behind the ask? Maybe those kinds of considerations will determine whether we even ask in the first place, right? But it's not the thing itself as you notice, it's what motivates the, the prayer itself. But let's not miss sight of the fact that Jesus wants to answer our prayers in the affirmative. He, he doesn't take joy 
in withholding things from us any more than we take joy in withholding good things from our children, right? He's not sitting up there just, just going, no, 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 right? Like he, he's not, look, he doesn't take joy in that. He's inviting us to pray, but to pray the right kinds of prayers. But Jesus only promises to answer those prayers that are in line with his character, consistent with his name and his reputation. Why would he promise to answer any other kind of prayer? doesn't make sense he doesn't and so he doesn't obligate himself to answer any other prayers that are done out of self-love or selfishness let me ask you this question you know when we pray do we address our prayers to the father or to the son you know, maybe you've never thought of this before, but a lot of uh, people have. For example, did you know in the next chapter, Jesus says this in chapter 15. I don't think I have a slide for this, so uh, just listen to me say it. Uh, he says this in chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here, we ask Jesus. But in the next chapter, we ask the Father. So the question then becomes, wait a minute. Which is it? Do we pray to the Father or do we pray to the Son? You know, there's an old saying that goes something like this. There's no jealousy in the Godhead. And I think that's appropriate when answering this question. Now, Jesus did give us a model of prayer to his disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. You remember this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9? And you remember the prayer starts with, our Father who art in heaven. So I would say that's probably normative, that we normally address our prayers to the Father, but that certainly does not mean that it's wrong to pray to Jesus as we see here, okay? So, uh, you know, you don't have to worry that, oh, I addressed it to Jesus, and so God's gonna be mad at me. You can address your prayers to Jesus, but don't forget, you do have a heavenly Father. You know, it's easy to overlook a simple point in a passage like this. And that is, Jesus is promising, think of it just for a second, that he himself will answer prayers that are made in his name. We've made this point again and again, but if Jesus were but a mere man, claims like this would be the height of absurdity. Who can hear and answer prayers except God himself. These silly claims that Jesus wasn't God, but that he was a moral man and a good teacher are totally ridiculous in light of these kinds of comments. Good and moral people don't run around claiming to be God and promising to answer your prayers, right? If I come up to you today and say, hey, listen, um, do you have anything you need prayer for? Yeah, I'm, you know, having um, issues with my back. It's hurting. Okay, well, tonight before you go to bed, uh, pray to me and I will answer your prayers. He'd be like, man, I better get out of this church, man. This is is crazy stuff going on here, right? Um, You wouldn't say, but you know what? He's a good and moral man. 
but he just claims to be God and he's going to hear and answer my prayers. You don't talk like that, right? You have another word for people that say those kinds of things and act that way, right? Um, and it isn't very flattering. So I don't know why we would say that about Jesus. Oh, you know, he wasn't God come in the flesh, you know, and all. But, uh, but he was a good and moral man. He was just delusional, I guess, right? No. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here we see the connection to the previous verses of asking for something in Jesus' name. Such a person will not be a manipulator, trying to selfishly get what he wants out of Jesus by using some canned formula as if the magic words in Jesus' name will somehow do the trick. Right? No, the person described in verses 13 and 14 is the person who loves Christ and demonstrates that love by keeping his commandments. Now, this isn't a one-and-done type scenario. Like, I, I kept your commands one day out of 50 years, and so I fulfilled this command, right? No, this isn't a one-and-done scenario, but it's a persistent attitude of love which is captured here in the present tense if you should keep on loving me you will keep my commandments it's talking about a lifestyle issue the apostle john expands on this theme in his first epistle chapter one uh, chapter two verses three to four where he says this and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. Anyone can say that they love Jesus. It's not difficult. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. It's not difficult, right? Anyone can do that, but just saying it doesn't make it true. The proof of a person's love for Jesus is objective, seen in obedience to his commands. This would refer broadly, by the way, to the whole of what Jesus taught, the whole of what he commanded, and, the, and what he modeled, right, in his earthly ministry. A person who says he loves Jesus but disregards his commands is living in contradiction to his profession. And John just simply says um, what it is, that if, it, if that on the screen there describes you, John says, well, you're a liar. And the saving truth of the gospel is, in, is not residing in a person that lives like this. So biblically speaking, the concept of knowing slash loving God, it isn't mystical. Like, you know, there's no, it's just pure subjectivism, but there's nothing objective about it whatsoever. No, it's intelligible, right? There is, it, it's objective. Also, um, as we've mentioned uh, before, biblical love is not primarily emotional or touchy-feely. It's demonstrated in actions. To know and love God is to obey him and to obey him is to know and to love him, right? Again, if Jesus weren't really one with his father, could he really talk about keeping my commandments personally, my commandments? He speaks as one who has the authority to make laws and commands for his people to follow, meaning he's no mere man, 
right? Do you know any other man to whom we pray and keep his commands? It's a good reminder that even in passages that are not explicitly teaching Christ's deity, you can see it implicitly in what he says about himself. All right, we're coming to the end here, and I kind of have to boogie here because we only have a little bit of time left here, but let's look at verses 16 and 17 really quickly. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is a, a noteworthy point in John's gospel. Starting in this verse and continuing into the next three chapters, we are given a mini-theology of the Holy Spirit. In fact, much of what we know about the Spirit's work is contained in these three chapters. So they are certainly significant, not to mention what we find in the rest of this chapter. Now, in the verses before us, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure by introducing the Spirit's future coming to not only replace Jesus' presence, but to go beyond it through his permanent indwelling of the believer. Jesus is going to instruct them on how to transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, which is characterized by the Holy Spirit. If you ask me what's the difference between the Old Covenant or what's the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, I would say the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what characterizes the New Covenant. But I want you to notice how the Trinity is seen working together in this passage. The Son is praying to the Father. The Father is giving the Spirit and the Spirit is doing what he is, is going to do what he was sent to do. So, Building off what, we, what was just said in the previous verse, who are Jesus' true followers? It is those who love him and keep his commandments. And for all such true believers, Christ will ask his Father to give you another helper to be with you forever. And the Father will honor this request from his Son. There's a lot of disagreement as to what the word helper means, as is evidenced by the various translations. You see all those on there? You see some say comforter, some say advocate, some say counselor, some say teacher, and others like the ESV say helper. This divergence in the English translation should tell us that this word is not easy to define with just one word. That's the frustration that translators often have when it comes to making, uh, going from the original to the, um, you know, uh, to the translation. The word helper only appears in John's writings and, and means to call alongside, to encourage, or to exhort. In classical Greek, this word was used to refer to a legal advocate in a court of justice, someone who pleads the case of their client. It's what we would call today a defense attorney. And that's probably the meaning that we find here as well, but it's probably not limited to that narrow aspect of defense attorney. Helper, by the way, in the ESV is a good word to use here. So long as you understand, it's a helping presence that is broad. He can be an encourager. 
He can be a friend. There's a lot of things he could do. He could be an advocate. There's a lot of things that he could be. So it's not narrow, the definition of this word, um, but it can include the idea of legal advocate, but it's not limited to that single idea. So the idea would be that whatever help you need in whatever form it takes, the helper will be there for you. Just like Jesus, he will strengthen you. He will lead you. He will teach you. He will guide you. He will empower you and he will be your legal advocate. Now, as you're hearing that, you can understand most of these, you know, these aspects, but you might be wondering, why would I need a legal advocate, right? The idea is simply that the helper will always be our defense attorney before the father. In other words, he will always be our go-between. He will always plead our innocence, so to speak, on behalf of Christ's righteousness. So it's meant to be an item of comfort that we never have to worry about the Father judging us guilty for our sins because we have an advocate with the Father. We aren't left guessing as to who the identity of the helper is because Jesus immediately identifies him as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And the fact that he is called another helper implies that he is taking the place of the helper they already have, which is Jesus. So the adjective another means he's another of the same kind. He's comparable to the one being replaced. In other words, he's not a downgrade from Jesus. So as Jesus leaves, the Spirit comes, who is not a downgrade, but an equal substitute. Also, the emphasis on him being with them forever is important because it means that he will always be with his people until the time that Christ returns. They don't have to worry about him leaving and going back to heaven like is the case here. He's going to be with you forever. Before we leave this part of the discussion, it may be interesting to mention Islam actually interprets this not as a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the prophet Muhammad. You get that for free. It has nothing to do with today's message. I just thought it was interesting in light of how they interpret this, but um, that's all I'm going to say about that. Why is the Holy Spirit characterized as the spirit of truth? This probably means the spirit who communicates truth. So simply put, his purpose is to communicate God's truth to us, the believer. Earlier in John's gospel, we were told that in order to worship God the Father, it was necessary to worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus says just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Okay, so think about Jesus' claim then to be the way, the truth, and the life earlier in the chapter, and you could see how the Spirit's function is to bear witness to the truth about who Jesus is. So all this to say, the truth is closely associated with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, so falsehood of any kind doctrinal or ethical, is not from God. And that's why it's no surprise that the devil is characterized not only as a liar, but the father of lies in John eight forty four. 
So even though Jesus affirms the reality of the Spirit, the world does not accept him, notice what it says in the passage, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world in John represents the world's system, viewed from a a moral perspective, that the world is organized together in rebellion against God. The world rejects the reality of the Spirit because, notice, it neither sees him nor knows him. And morally speaking, there's nothing they can do about it. This can mean either that the world doesn't have empirical evidence that he exists, I, I can't see him, I don't believe in him, or they can't perceive his activity in the world. Both are true, by the way, of the unbeliever. Unless God opens up a man's spiritual eyes to see, this will be the continuing reality for such a person. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, which is a reference to the, under, uh, to the unbeliever, will not um, be able to accept the truth from the spirit, but will reject it because spiritually speaking, he's not capable of accepting the spirit's truth. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says it's possible to say that the only person who will understand the words about the spirit is the one who has already experienced the presence of the spirit, Right? You, you only know it if you've experienced it. It's hard to explain it to somebody else. And as is evident in, in these last two verses, the Holy Spirit is not described as an it or a power. He is described as a person. An it or power doesn't communicate truth. He doesn't lead you into the truth. He doesn't abide with you forever, nor is an it knowable or capable of dwelling with or in you. No, the Spirit has personhood and is rightly described as the third person of the Trinity. All right, this all has new covenant implications. Notice the new covenant implication of Jesus' last statement. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This speaks of the difference between believers who lived under the old covenant versus those who would live under the new, and it had everything to do with the Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, believers were not, and I repeat, not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt that believers were regenerated by the Spirit in the Old Testament, but they were not personally indwelt by him. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied about the new covenant at a time when many of Judah's inhabitants had been carried away by Babylon into exile. And here was the Lord's message uh, to them. He said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now I want you to listen carefully. And I will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. No longer would the spirit be with them in an external way, but now he would take up residence within them under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, God will put his spirit within his people, changing their hearts so that they will have an inner prompting and desire to obey the Lord 
and his statues. And this is why John makes this distinction here. Presently to his disciples, he is, he is dwelling with you. But in the future, he is going to be in you. He's going to dwell within you. He'll be in them. I had a few other things to say uh, about it. Obviously, I, I ran out of time here. Sorry. Uh, but um, let me just say this by way of, of um, exhortation as we close the, the, the verse this morning. All of that becomes the basis for Galatians 5 of walking in the Spirit, that you could submit to the Spirit. And the only way that you could submit to the Spirit is by studying the Word of God, believing it, and then implementing it into your life, taking it seriously. Who is the author of the Scripture? The Holy Spirit. So how do you walk in the Spirit? You obey Him by obeying His Word. And, and so you can walk in the Spirit. Uh, you remember Ephesians 5, be filled in the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled in the Spirit. That gives you an idea of what that means. Don't be under the influence or intoxicated by alcohol, but instead come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's the exhortation. We can understand that as New Covenant believers that we have this Holy Spirit living with, within us to cause us to walk in his ways. If you're not a believer and you're hearing all of this, it probably sounds very foreign to you and probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. All I could say to you is if you're willing to repent and come to Christ as you are, you realize you can't clean up your life or clean up your sins or make yourself better. But the Spirit will not only, Christ will not only forgive your sins and break the power of sins, he then will put his spirit inside of you so you will be able to do things you never could have done before, morally speaking. And that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just forgive sins, it empowers to live a holy life. And I would invite you, if you haven't done that, to turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the truth about the spirit. Lord, we pray that we would come and walk in the Spirit. We pray that we would uh, be people that are submissive to him, that we would bear the fruits of the Spirit in our life due to our obedience. So help us, Lord, to to meditate on the word this week, implement it into our life, and live the way that Christ has called us to. We pray in Jesus' name.